0: So we're going to try something ambitious over the next few weeks. The summer gives us a breather from the lectionary. Once we get past Pentecost and all the things to do with, you know, uh, Advent, then Epiphany, then Lent, then Easter, then Pentecost, and all of those things, once we get into this time of the year, we call that sort of mean time or green time, whatever you want to call it. But it's a chance to take a break from the lectionary and just sort of follow our muse, as it were. And whatever that next hard conversation is, that's what I want to be having during the summer. And it's not because people are away and they won't hear what we're talking about. It's just how we kind of roll around here. And so if it feels like a hard conversation, I'm going to go for it because that's what grownups do. Grownups have hard conversations, right? Not not everyone in your life that is supposed to be a grownup actually acts like a grownup, but I'm just saying, just concede the point. Grownups have hard conversations when they need to. So for a while now, we've been talking about going back and relooking at old things through the lens of new experiences in search of new meaning. It's just drifted. It's become this sort of the subtext of the spring for us. And I'm not talking about looking back with anger or with new access to grind or old access to grind. That was a season of my life. I'm sorry you lived through it. You did. We came through it. That was a season of my life for certain. But now I'm reaching back these days for different reasons. And I don't know if you can hear it, but I hope you can. Increasingly for me, reaching back is about gratitude and curiosity, genuinely. We're growing up together, you and I, as it turns out, if you've been around for a minute. And many of us now feel appreciation and admiration when we look back at the forces, sometimes even the traumas that shaped us. And it feels right, doesn't it, to look back with an open heart, which is, I suspect, the long-awaited new little bud, the new little shoot of what we would call faith reorientation. You know, it's a cycle. First, it's disorienting, and then it's... It, it takes shape again, so it goes from, re, from disorientation to reorientation. You could think of it as faith reintegration or faith reconstruction or the rediscovery of the beauty buried in our stories. I think we're beginning to see a new little bud come up through the soil. We aren't made of loss and trauma alone. We aren't. The church wounds and the church heals, and I don't know how to explain that to you, but sometimes the same site initiates the same, uh, those, any one of those two processes. And starting from anywhere with a whole heart, an open heart, I think we can always find the light. I hope you believe that because I know that I do. Well, now, for sure, we have a long way to go. I'm not saying we've arrived anywhere, but things are beginning to take shape, at least for me. Together, we look back and we make fresh meaning of things because we can, because our faith empowers us to constantly be in that mode of looking back and making new meaning. This is actually what following Jesus means. This is actually what discipleship looks like. Isn't that what grown ups do after all? And with each new cycle or layer or season, however you want to refer to it, of disorientation and reorientation, what I'm discovering as the residue in my heart is that courage is beginning to build for me. I'm starting to see some courage take, play, take shape after all these years. And so now, finally, I think I'm ready to look again with fresh eyes and an open heart at those seminal stories from the Old Testament that shaped our imagination as children, You know the ones, creation in the Garden of Eden, Noah's Ark, Tower of Babel, Abraham and Isaac, Sodom and Gomorrah, Moses and the Red Sea, David and Goliath, Samson and Delilah, Jonah and the large fish. I don't think we can technically call it a whale, but you know the story, right? These are the oldest stories in Christianity. Well, honestly, if we're being honest, they aren't even our stories. We stole them. These come from Judaism, which means we may need some help from them to interpret these stories. I wonder if we could just begin to be a little more honest about that. These ancient stories, they come from somewhere. We are very willing to appropriate all things that we need, right? This being America, as we do. They belonged to someone before they belonged to us, but we've been telling them to ourselves for so long that we've all but forgotten their origin. These were the first stories told to us as children, and so they carried a lot of weight. Even if some of them are old and weird, and let's be honest, unbelievable and impossible to imagine, we mostly ignore them as grown-ups as we learn and develop, because we don't know how to make sense of these simple ancient stories that we were told. But I think there's a better option than just throwing them away, which many of my colleagues have decided to do, and I don't hate them for that. There's a better option. Can't we just name what's awkward? Can't we just admit when these stories don't make sense? Can't we be honest about that? I mean, doesn't that seem like the grown-up option? Now, these aren't the only stories that we were told. They were important enough to turn up on flannel graph boards in Sunday school rooms where teachers made sure our crystal, that we were crystal clear about the essential details that any tiny Christian soldier might need right before they sent us off to apologetics camps as teens. You know the ones. It's a lot of autobiography in that paragraph. And to be clear, these are larger-than-life stories. These stories did a decent job of opening our hearts and our minds. I value them, I really do, but we aren't eight anymore. Our faith has matured, and it's not just us that have grown. I think society itself has matured collectively as well. Eight-year-olds, you see, can swallow stories of enormous fish swallowing reluctant missionaries, but do grown-ups have to in all of their supposed factual detail? Well, as Ilya Delio points out in a dozen masterful written works that she's left, not only do organisms evolve, but so do organizations of organisms. So consciousness rises. Organisms adapt. They morph and remap and redesign and shift and grow and re-aim and change. But so do systems of organisms. So does consciousness together. What I'm suggesting to us is that it's time to rethink some of the things we were told not to think critically about. If we don't, our kids will, they're just not going to have it. So that's what I'm suggesting we do. I think we're all growing up, as it were. The cosmos is coming of age. She's aware of herself in new ways that wasn't true before, at least it seems that way to me. And many of our original stories made perfect sense to us as children, but being childlike is not the same as being childish. Childishness is something we need to let go of. Childlikeness, well, that's worth hanging on to. You see, childlikeness is curious. It's curiosity. Childishness is closed-minded and full of fear. Don't Don't ask questions of my stories, right? Childlikeness is full of wonder and pursuit. Childishness is worried about asking the wrong questions, like we might be signing up for some sort of a celestial slap in the face if we dare ask the wrong question. Well, on the other hand, adults are generally better at distinguishing between fables and facts. Maybe not always, but for the most part. And even if we struggle with this from time to time, at least as adults we know not to feel dirty or defiant for wondering out loud. Adults know that stories carry so much more than, more meaning than just facts attached to them. In fact, from a sociological or social science perspective, myths and stories and tribal lore are best understood as functional things, not factual things. And I wonder if I might set up this whole story, this whole series with the following missionary story. It's my favorite one. It's one of my favorites. So Togo Amulamu was the chief, of a founding, and, the chief and the founding member of, a, of the Tabaru tribe living in the Spice Islands in eastern Indonesia. Now, you might know them as the Malucan Islands if you look on your map, but it's the same group of islands. It's the part of the world where nutmeg and mace grow native, where they come from. So you could find Borneo and look north-northwest for an island called Halmahera. It's kind of small, but it's next to a larger one called Ternate. That's the part of the world that I'm talking about. Well, my friend spent his entire career there as a missionary linguist, translating the New Testament into the Tabaru language. They had no written code until him. They had an oral language, but it only existed in the hearing and the tailing of it. And his gift to them, in addition to the New Testament, which was a huge gift, after 30 years of his life living there, was to give them a well-written and well-researched history of the origin of their tribe. The New Testament, of course, was a huge gift, but so was their personal story written down. Both mattered immensely. Here's why. The founding chief was said to have been brave, of course, and enormous. So tall, in fact, that the colonnades of the portico of his house, which now lay in ruin according to centuries of oral tradition, were bigger than anything the Tabaru had ever seen made by human hands. Enormous stone colonnades. Also, there was a legendary spot near the ruins of that original home where in in local river rock, Amulamu's foot was said to have been permanently imprinted in the stone. Now, when a tribe has only shared their stories via oral tradition, when they take their leap into written history of, their, of the same telling of their beginnings, something, for something to be trustworthy and true, the tribal leaders would have to see it with their own eyes, and then it could be written down. So I was honored to be part of an expedition that went deep into the rainforest and laid eyes on these two sites, the footprint in the river rock and these massive colonnades that supposedly held up the front portico of the home of their founding member, founding chief. So deep into the jungle, we went first on motorcycles, and I was so delighted, and then for hours on foot, and that was somewhat less delightful. A whole entourage of us, and we found exactly what we were told we might find, something that looked like a footprint in stone, sort of, and huge pillars, several of them laying on one another, as if something had toppled an ancient palace, sort of. Now, you know me, I got an A in... In geology in college. I got an A in all my college classes, if you must know. I can flex on Father's Day. We talked about something called columnar basalt. Does anyone know what that is? Columnar basalt. Oh, I love it. A whole room full of people who don't know what I'm talking about. I knew that it wasn't uncommon in that part of Indonesia, something called columnar basalt. In the Indonesian archipelago, you see, there was a lot of volcanic activity. And when basalt, which is a form, a grainy sort of form of Earth's lava, when it comes through the uh, outer crust of the Earth and it spews into our atmosphere and it's cooled, it sometimes organizes itself and breaks into predictable planes, creating columns. You can pop that slide up and you can see what I'm talking about. Just like magic, ready? Poof. There it is, columnar basalt. So I can see how someone might assume these massive rocks must have been literally hewn by human hands and whoever would have done that must have been enormous. I can see that. If you don't have access to an introductory understanding of geological science, what else would you assume? You tell me, look at that, what would you assume? The Tabaru people didn't know much about tectonic plate history, as it turns out. Their understanding of the Earth's crust wasn't as deep as their breath knowledge and understanding of ocean tides and cardinal directions and moon phases and how to cultivate the most desirable substance on Earth during the Middle Ages, the spice that launched endless global wars of which they were always the victims. The Tabaru weren't terribly concerned with the scene floor, as it turns out, so they looked at these massive pillars and they did what any one of us would do. They created a story around it. The Tabaru are just like us, meaning makers. They assumed that these huge columns must have sustained an enormous house and that only the likes of Togo, now this is, I, I wanna be clear, this is not the picture of what we went to find in the, in the forest, so you can drop that. People are way too distracted now. Kill the screens immediately. Lock the back doors. Okay, I got you again. They assumed that these stone columns must have sustained an enormous house and that only someone as large as their founding chief could have lived in such a house. And it makes perfect sense to me when you think about it from a social science perspective. That story had a function well beyond any kind of fact that we as outsiders might feel essential to tell them about how these ended up there. You see, when your tribe is enslaved, literally, by every single iteration of colonial power, be they Dutch or Portuguese or Spanish or English or French... If you are enslaved by every single iteration of colonial power that had sufficient sailing sciences and maritime mastery to navigate the high seas, then you need a bold story of origin, don't you? One that speaks to your dignity and to your destiny. You need to be able to tell your children the stories about the noble birth of your people in a world that sees them only as weak and exploitable. It's a matter of survival, these stories we tell ourselves. The Dvaru people had so very little to boast about to their young. How dare any outsider like me come in and deflate their, their stories of origin, their stories of their founding warrior? How dare we come in with stupid facts and not so very helpful ideas about columnar basalt and ridiculous tectonic theory, which, if we're honest, to be clear, is still made of a fair amount of conjecture. <laughs> you know, I said nothing when asked what my impression was of these massive columns, nothing other than, oh, man, what a God among men Togo must have been. But you know what? Now that the Jabaru have a written language that Ed gave them because he taught them to use solar-powered QWERTY keyboards, now that they have smartphones in their hands, their grandkids will need to look back at their own history. However functional it has been till now for previous generations, they might need an upgrade because, you see, all cosmologies need to be reconsidered in time. And I wonder if you see my point as we launch into a series of conversations about our the stories that shaped us. You see, stories have functional purposes that go well beyond the facts alone. Wait, what? No one admitted this to you about the epic stories that form our Christian faith? No one told you this about our stories? Were you taught to take them at face value simply as they were told to you, questioning nothing, accepting everything as written, no matter how ancient, no matter how odd? Is that what you were told? Of course you were. That's what we were all told, because Christians needed those stories almost as much as the ancient Jews who wrote them down. They served a very important purpose in the shaping of our collective psyche, you see, like massive stone colonnades and giant footprints in stone. They worked for us until they didn't. Friends, we're adults now, and adults are allowed to ask some of the hard questions about these stories. We're allowed to say some of these just aren't believable. Now, I'm not saying to throw them out. I'm saying hold on to them tightly if that works for you. It worked for me for decades. But blind acceptance, or adolescence, if you will, has a natural shelf life. It's supposed to. So does that mean we throw them away? Not at all. We have another option. We have a grown-up option, as it turns out, which is to hold them for what they were, respect the weight that they carry and still carry, but allow them to rest gently now on our collective minds so that because, that, because we've grown up significantly since the first hearing of these stories. We now know where the sun goes at night. It isn't a fiery chariot pulled across the sky as it once seemed to very smart and wholehearted people. You see, I want to be a man of the 21st century, a man of science and curiosity and reason and intellectual rigor. I want to be a modern member of the human experience, one that doesn't hide in my own shirt pocket when learned people of the hard sciences take the mic. I want to be honest and true and authentic. I want to be an adult. But I also want to be a man of faith one who's deeply rooted in these histories, these ancient stories that have given our people purpose and meaning for millennia. So I propose that we look at them again with open hearts and open minds, with zero animus or anger, with no more access to grind or old injuries to avenge. I propose we let the, the timeless beauty of these stories buried in the telling of them do what beauty does so well, inspire us and captivate our imagination. Since you know well, imagination is way more responsive to beauty than it ever was to fact. Anyhow, beauty is her own truth category. Friends, your body has always known that bit of wisdom it always has. It's actually a form of violence to force upon a beautiful ancient story the weight of our late modern expectation of facticity and historicity. And I would argue it just makes those stories uglier when we do. So let's look again. I propose... What were you told about the Garden of Eden? What were you told about where we came from? How did we get here? When your wide-eyed child asks, what do you tell them? Because they will, and you'll need to have an answer. And no matter how you respond, I wonder if you can see how important your next few sentences after that well-shaped question, I wonder if you can see how important it is in the formation of, the, of their little heads and hearts. And this is exactly the historical context into which the story of the Garden of Eden gets inserted. Let me see if I can make this case. Having spent many generations as slaves in Egypt under the leadership of Moses, finally the Hebrew people marched out into the desert and suddenly discovered their desperate need for a story of origin. They had left the one of Egypt behind. And so Genesis becomes that story that they shape themselves around it isn't an eyewitness account this won't be revelation to you Moses could not have written about something he was not present at Moses also could not have written about his death we've just told ourselves Moses wrote the whole thing because he was there no he wasn't there friends this is not an eyewitness account he wasn't pretending to have been there this is a story of mythological size and scope and you must know that I use that word myth with all the respect of a social scientist You see, myth is a functional thing. It's not about being true or not. It's a functional thing of the very highest order in culture. And to properly assess the value of a story of origin like Genesis, just remind yourself that it has been functioning as a guiding myth now for 34 centuries and counting. That's a powerful commentary on the beauty it contains. So let's read very briefly in summary form what they came up with. And I encourage you to look for beauty and meaning, not for precise facts or eyewitness details. So Genesis 1 tells the story this way. This will be familiar. I'll read the first couple verses. They'll be on your screen. Then you have to allow me to skip through these different seven days or we'll be here until next Father's Day. Genesis 1. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was complete chaos and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. I always wondered, I used to ask Dad, why are there waters if he hadn't created waters yet? Shut up and just swallow was what I was told. Verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Verse 6, and God said, let there be a dome in the midst of the waters. I prefer the King James word, firmament. It just seems to mean fewer things, and it's easier for me to lock in anyway. Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the other waters. Verse 9, and then God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And we're starting to see these seven days as we know them. Then God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. Verse 14 Then God said, Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And then God made in verse 16 two great lights the great light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And of course, that's the sun and the moon. And then the stars. Verse 20, and then God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the the earth across the dome of the sky. And so God created the great sea monsters, which have always intrigued me. And every living creature that moves, and of everything, of that which The waters swarm in every winged bird in every kind. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And verse 24, and then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things. And I'm so glad since I have daughters that he brought creeping things because I will forever be useful in removing the creeping things and wild animals in the earth of every kind. And then verse 26, then God said, let us make humans in our image, plural there in the Hebrew. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish in the sea and over the birds in the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals in the earth and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish. And you're beginning to see the repetition and this should harken back to Hebrew poetry. It's written in grand poetic repetition, grand poetic style. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food and it, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning and the sixth day. That's the story we have in Genesis chapter 1. Now notice, after each day, God made a declaration of goodness. We call this original goodness. It was God's idea. Except on that final day, on that day, God declared that it was very good. And this is the picture of a proud designer, of an artist deeply content with the work of their hands, which might be the most important image to take away from this story of origin in the end. But as you know, this wasn't the only story of origin. There were others that contended for Hebrew imagination in the desert at the time, the most important of them being, of course, the one that's preserved for us in Genesis 2. And I wonder if anyone has ever told you that these are completely different stories, completely different versions of the events. You see, in Genesis 1, is written in grand poetic form, features a mysterious and brooding God, otherworldly and disembodied, who hovers over elements and creates effortlessly, while Genesis 2 is written in folksy prose, features a sculptor God who becomes a surgeon God who works in the dirt to make a friend. This God tires and needs a day of rest at the end of his labors. In Genesis 1, God makes a plurality of people all at once. Look at your Hebrew pronouns. Go all the way back to school for that if you don't believe me. And then in Genesis 2, God made one man first and then the woman is taken from his rib as a solution to man's chronic loneliness. Both versions appear in our collection but they've got totally different aims and they come from totally different periods in ancient history. They don't even con- coincide in the terms that they used to refer to God. One speaks of God as Elohim and one speaks of God as Yahweh. These are hundreds of years apart in, the or- in their origin. So why is it that we insist that they're both telling the same story when they don't agree on the details? Now hang with me, friend. We insist that simply because a man named Augustine said so. We're still sorting through the shenanigans of the third and fourth centuries. That's when Christianity was mixed with power and global ambition, and something was lost permanently. Something was lost in the soul of our faith. Christianity was legalized in the year 313 of the Common Era, and as soon as Constantine, the emperor, figured out how to manipulate it, he realized that Christianity could be used to control the masses. Our faith lost her soul and became the engine of empire. Augustine was one of the original theologians who took it upon himself to straighten out Christian dogma in the early years. He hailed from Algeria, North Africa. His life happens right between the first two great church councils of Nicaea and Constantinople. That's where the canon was closed and then deified, and that's where the divinity of Jesus was established and the doctrine of the Trinity was formed. That was the milieu of his upbringing. And the interesting thing is that by the time the Christian movement was almost completely Gentile, That's when Augustine comes along and begins to codify these doctrines. You see, there were no Jews left in the halls of influence of young Christianity to help interpret these ancient stories of origin that belonged to them, ancient stories like Genesis. At least there weren't many. And the pre-modern Gentile sensibilities of Augustine were skewed heavily towards literalism and facticity. So Genesis lost her soul, one of beauty and allegory and poetry. And she became something more like an eyewitness account of seven literal days of creation, which is not how Jews would ever have read that story. Now, we could spend all summer on this point alone, but we won't, we mustn't. Here's the question for us. Are we expected to believe that God made one set of human beings, who, by the way, were, were Swedish, <laughs> at least in the flannel graphs in the church basements where I hung out, Are we expected to believe that God made one set of human beings and then threw them out of paradise because they were curious about enlightening themselves, about understanding both good and evil? You see, Jewish scholars, for the most part, read the Genesis account as the emergence of human consciousness, not a story of worlds lost because of sin and temptation. You see, the church fathers of the third and fourth centuries thought everything was perfect in the beginning, but we know that's not how the world works. We know the world is still becoming The world is still evolving, adapting, and taking shape and unfolding in beauty and complexity. I mean, don't grownups know this? Darwin, Charles Darwin, was able to see that things begin simple and they move in the direction of greater complexity over time. It's not the other way around, and Darwin wasn't the first to say it. He was just the most articulate at the time. You see, it's the trajectory of a literal seven-day creation based on a literal reading of Genesis that feels musty and obsolete to me now. Can I be that honest? what we know about the fourth century is that the work of Jesus, still bearing the irksome cargo of sacrificial systems and atonement and blood offerings, it was falling out of favor as cultures became more sophisticated and global in nature and scope. And by the fourth century, people from all over the globe began to interact in public marketplaces and arenas of ideas around countless stories of origins and cosmovisions, and many of them were beautiful stories, and some of them were far more compelling even than an angry God who had to murder his son to remind himself how to love what he himself declared good according to their own poetry. You see, Augustine had to make Eden about guilt and sin and punishment. Everything was about original sin to him. But that's an idea that was foreign to the text completely. You see, original sin doesn't live naturally within Jewish writings until Augustine, a Gentile, said so. And it didn't become official church doctrine until the 16th century at the Council of Trent, by the way. But remember, consolidating power and influence was the aim of the 4th century church fathers under Emperor Constantine. Original sin, supported by literal interpretation of Genesis is essential if the world's people are to be convinced of a need of their need of a savior. You have to create a market before you can deliver a product if you intend to control outcomes. Everyone knows that. And as you might expect, this is the moment that these accounts, these ancient, beautiful stories of origin were no longer seen as beautiful poems or stories about God's interactions with the cosmos. This is the moment that they became the very words of God, words with which, I might add, one cannot tinker. I love that sentence. Way too many commas for my mom's taste. You can't tinker without risking your life with these words after Augustine is done with them. No grown-up questions are allowed. Augustine gives us a world of airtight Christian doctrines, a world of infidels and saints with nothing in between. But please, friend, please, is this what grown-ups do with ancient texts? So what are we to make of this epic story of origin? Can anybody hear me whispering conclusion to to the piano player? Telepathically? What are we to make of this epic story of origin? Can we appreciate its beauty, its limitations? Can we see how it speaks something essential to the people of its time, even to us all these years later? Can we? I hope we can. You see, great stories of origin always speak to the why and to the who much more profoundly than to the when and to the how, and that's how we've done violence to these stories. We don't have to let go of what we know to be true about the fossil record or what we can extrapolate mathematically from a collision of matter that initiated a very slow development of single-cell organisms that eventually learned to reproduce and complexify and achieve increasing consciousness in honor of their origin. We get to admit that the invention of fire and its impact on our diet and our caloric intake literally allows us to repurpose huge muscle groups in our head and face which created capacity for more thought and more language and eventually higher and higher levels of cognition in honor of our origin. We don't have to allow ancient poetry processed through pre-modern minds of empire builders to stifle our divine invitation to build new models of understanding of the nature of God and of the nature of the cosmos. Friend, I can't say it any clearer than this. We are not trying to re paradise lost, friends. We are still becoming. We're still on our way. Eden, whatever it was or wasn't, is behind us. Total integration is what lies ahead now. Those who came before us were innovating, and so should we be. No model of God is binding forever. There are always more being developed. That's the point. And I hope you can hear some permission in this that might set you free if, it let, if you let it. If this is too much for you, it's just too far for you to go, that's fine, put it on a shelf for now. Take your time. But asking these questions, friends, asking these hard questions, this is what grownups do. And we both know Being a grown-up isn't merely a matter of age. It's a matter of release, of letting go. It's a matter of acceptance. You see, chronology works on all of us eventually. It works on us unpredictably, but it works on us reliably. Some of us remain children till our dying breath, but I want so much more for you and I than that. Just know that growing up will never be about gripping tighter to ancient stories or hating people who don't see them the way they, that we do it will never be about being more right about our dogmatic interpretations of ancient texts No, no 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 growing up will always be about being more free free and full of wonder free and full of wonder and inspired increasingly by beauty inspired to keep asking keep wondering keep building new models of reality oh let's be that kind of Wouldn't that be fun?